0: Welcome to Retro Fanfic Retrospective, the podcast where we dredge up old fanfiction and expose it to the cold, harsh light of 2022. My name is Amato, he, him, and with me are...
1: Tori, they, them, and... Sarah, she, her.
0: Sarah, thanks so much for taking time out of your day and also time out of your vacation to join us remotely today.
2: Uh, Of course, I'm happy to do so. fanfiction is like a mini vacation in any day of the week, so uh I'm very happy to be here.
0: Well I'll tell you, you definitely gave me a vacation because you basically did my job for me for this recording. <laughs> you reached out, suggested something to talk about, and kind of just arranged it all yourself.
2: <laughs> I feel like that's what I did um last time. And it just um I mean you're welcome. I always feel a little like, am I going am I being too much of a weirdo here, Sarah? <laughs> just like let me come on your show.
0: No, no, I, I love it. I'll I'll outsource the whole planning of the show. If we can just like get a rotating cast of like half a dozen to, you know, 10 people who will just like say, hey, I want to talk about this on your show. I'll be like, done. That- that's the show.
1: <laughs> yeah. Like I get so excited when I see emails from people like asking to come on the show because I'm like, well, first of all, I'm excited for Amado because that's less planning for him. <laughs> and I know he's busy, but also I'm just like, yay, more content, more episodes. Hooray.
0: And of course, we're always happy to talk to you specifically, Sarah.
1: Oh, <laughs> that's sweet. Uh Ditto, you you
2: guys the whole crew there, uh including Della, um who's behind the mic is always a delightful crew. So, I love it.
0: Well, that that makes us a band of close um artists who will hopefully not fall apart some years into our extremely successful podcasting yeah. career. That <laughs> was my Beatles try to a connection. Did that work?
1: Sort of worked.
0: Um I got it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> So what prompted you to reach out to us was that you listened to our episode about um, definition of fan fiction. Is that right? Where we just sort of like fell into a confused pile when we reached RPF and just did not know what to make of it and where to draw the line between real person fan fiction and people just writing stories about the world or about historical fiction. And um, in the end, you... You proposed a specific story for us, too. Could you tell us a little bit about your experience with RPF in general and maybe why this story was something that you thought was worth talking about specifically?
2: Yes, indeed. Uh, First of all, it was a great episode. I really appreciated you guys um, just kind of digging into that discussion of what is fan fiction generally, because actually not as simple of a question as you might think, especially when you start digging into like the history of fan fiction. Um. And so I, I appreciated all those angles. I mean, generally I kind of see it as like, are you writing uh new stories and you know, exploring spaces out of copyrighted characters? Um uh but actually, you know, like there's I don't know, there's all kinds of angles you could go at and you guys discussed a lot a lot of those. So I I uh, appreciate that. But yeah, RPF is a weird one, R- uh real person fiction. Um I have never really had never really been into rpf until recently i mean i'd read rpf before but not really gotten interested enough especially to write it um and so recently i became obsessed with um the band oasis from the 90s and the relationship between the gallagher brothers and so that's recently like what i'm into now and i and i just finished a 70,000 word story in that fandom so i'm like in in the trenches in the depths of my obsession right now Um, but you guys, um, you know, kind of being in the niche of retro fanfic made me think about like what I'd read in the past, um, which I'd read some stuff like when I was into star Trek, the 2009 reboot, I think I read some RPF on the actors of, um, Chris Pine and Zachary Quinto. That was popular for a little bit. Um, Mm. but I remembered one of my favorite authors of all time. Her name's Candlebeck. Um, She's not active now. Um, She was a pretty popular author, especially in the Supernatural fandom. She wrote Sam Dean Wincesfic, which around, um, yeah, probably around that time, 2009 or 10, was when I uh, got into Supernatural and found her writing. And then I, I enjoyed her just writing style so much that I looked at the rest of her work and she had a lot of RPF baseball fic. Actually, so if you go to Candlebeck's AO3 page, you'll see like a hundred some stories um, written about like these baseball players and they're pretty much all from the uh, San Francisco Giants and the Oakland Athletics from like the early to mid 2000s. Um, So she was incredibly prolific in that. Um, and I think I dipped my toe a little there, but I didn't know enough about those players to be super interested. But I remember clicking on this story back then. And um, and that, I can't remember if I was already getting into the Beatles music. I kind of feel like maybe this fic made me start listening to the Beatles. And then I and I got like, I had a two-year obsession just for the first time really getting into the Beatles music. Um, I'm pretty sure it was the fic first. Um, so anyway, that was, that was probably like maybe 10, probably 10 years ago or so. Um, so it was the first one I thought of and I thought, oh, I really want to talk about Candleback first of all, just generally. And then I thought this was a, an interesting example of a well-written RPF. And we can talk about like, you know, how it's, um, if you know anything about Beatles history, how it kind of lines up and doesn't line up or whatever.
1: Um, but I thought it was a good example. It's, um. Interesting, Sarah, that you brought up um, the differences between, you know, what they portray, what the author portrays in the fan fiction. They have a lot of dedication to a lot of historical facts, but then also some, I would assume, very deliberate deviations. And I suppose we can get into that as we go through. But um, I will say that I love this fanfic just for its... And maybe this is why real person fanfic is so appealing. I was a huge, I've always been a huge music fan. So like, especially in middle school, I was obsessed with, as they called it, classic rock, you know, and U2 is still my favorite band. So I read a lot of U2 (sighs) fanfiction when I was young. And usually those are similar things. They're like pairing off the the members of the band together. Um, And I don't know exactly where I was going with that, except that this sort of like tickled a little... Bone in me, you know, like I've mentioned before, I I didn't read a ton of fan fiction growing up, but like band fanfic was definitely a thing, especially stuff like this. So,
0: yeah,
2: uh yeah, I was I was gonna also say that um, that I think it'd be interesting to just to think about what this brings up with the uh, the appeal of bandfic specifically as like a subgenre of RPF, and I, with me getting into the Oasis thing, I feel like. It's a it's a similar appeal, which is that you have like a group of people who I think in the best types of bandfic and the best types of stories is that you're usually com- the characters are usually coming from a place of like hardship, poverty, um, you know, feeling like they're very small in the world to like going on this almost like a hero's journey. It's sort of the toppermost of the poppermost, and like becoming famous. And then that's where like all of the real life like pressures and adversity and like the, um there's probably like a narrative word for that. But like all of the interesting stuff happens when like you get famous. And then alongside that, you have like the whole body of work of the music, which like just adds kind of a, like a poetic layer of like, either you're like trying to dig into the lyrics and interpret what they actually meant. Is there like a, a sort of a, romance kind of being told through the lyrics that's i feel like a common thing of like who's talking to who depending on what period and the bands tend to follow like this common arc of like coming together getting famous probably the fame becoming too much and then you know most bands um accepting some remarkable bands like you too like they mostly break up and mm-hmm. then there's that whole like angsty mess that you can dig into so like just this like what band picked like just tends to be is like a really rich sort of kind of dramatic ground for like speculation and interpretation
0: well of the two other rpf fanfics that we've read on this podcast one of them was also a beatles one and it wasn't at all representative of rpf i think it was very strange was that the title with strings attached was that right? uh, n-
1: no oh yeah it was either yeah i think it was with strings attached you're right yeah
0: but what I was going to say is that that fanfic was post Beatles breakup, but when all four of them were still alive, and it was very concerned with some of those kind of dynamics that you were talking about of kind of like, what does it mean to have been a huge musical act and then to have fallen apart because of personality clashes in large part. And um, and so, yeah, I see what you're talking about with that kind of narrative um, richness of those band type themes. It's
1: something I also think about a lot is like with bands, um, you also have the performative elements. I think I probably mentioned this before, but you also have the the band members as characters um, in U2, like I mentioned, is one of my favorites. Um, Bono performs a lot of different characters, or at least especially he did in the early 90s. But in the Beatles, like they had movies where they were their own characters. And I think that's interesting, too, because people will seize on that characterization or... Like, I think this story does seize on more of, I don't know, I guess the flaws of the humans as they were.
2: Yeah. um, That's a good point, especially, (laughs) yeah, the fact that the Beatles did those movies, it's like another layer of meta on top, which is um, just further sort of confusing um, on top of the already confusing dilemma we have around celebrities generally. Like, we already, like in regular fan fiction, you're writing about a fictional character and, and you take your kind of baseline characterization from a canon and then people will kind of usually they like your fic better if it sort of meshes well with what they know is canon. Um, so with RPF, canon, canon is real life, but it's not really, I mean, it is and it isn't real life. It's like who we know Paul McCartney is, is based on like interviews, his music, um, what he's like on stage, um, what people have written about him. But, you know, that's that's like all sort of a, almost a performance in itself of just by nature of being a celebrity. Um, so anyway, that's just no giant point there, except that it's, it's interesting to think about what a character is um, and the difference between a fictional character and kind of the, 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 um, Personality of a of a public person and how that's sort of almost a fictional character, kind of, but it isn't. It, it, isn't, it isn't.
1: It isn't. It isn't. I I think that's an excellent point. Like obviously, it was your you know, sticking point and something that the reason you wanted to bring this real person fanfic to us, um, which we do greatly appreciate. And something I will say is that I think what this fanfic does well, even though it's still fictionalizing the people. And we should probably launch into talking about it, but it's not doing it in a way that's, um, you know, some people really elevate like John Lennon, you know, because he died when he was pretty young. And, and at the end of his life, he was all like peace and love, etc. But, you know, he blatantly admitted to abusing his first wife, like and possibly his, his you know, uh, his first son sean i think yeah
2: uh julian yeah julian
1: no sean was the second son sorry um yeah i don't know um it's really interesting but what i like about this story is it it kind of balances those two ideas of who john as a person is
0: well i think we should get more into the nitty-gritty so let's introduce the story the title is the first year and it's by candlebeck Apparently, it was originally published in 2010, mid-2010, on LiveJournal by the author. And we are reading the archive of our own copy, which was posted about a year later, and we'll provide a link to that on the show notes. It might be relevant that it was posted twice, because uh, we just noticed before recording that it appears the LiveJournal version might be a little longer and might have been edited down for AO3, but I'm happy just reading what the author presumably intended to be the final cut of the story and um the story let's see it's set before the beatles as a band exists and so it's kind of a nice bookend to the beatles fanfic we read which was after the beatles dissolved we still haven't read anything where the beatles are a band um (laughs) but you know all all i knew about the lives of these people was like oh yeah most of these guys grew up in liverpool which is kind of a working class you know district that's all I knew. And I paid no thought whatsoever to like what that means on like a nitty gritty level or like how that relates to their individual lives. But it, it, if I had to summarize the first part of the story, it's kind of introducing us to the main characters of the four original Beatles and the dynamics between them.
1: Well, and also I think to the burgeoning romance between Paul and John in this story because, like, that's kind of the first thing you get is I think they're all about, you know, 15 or 16.
0: Well, that's the dynamic between them, right? Well, I don't know. <laughs> 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 yeah.
1: But, you know, it starts in the middle of summer. John came over to Paul's house and uh, church bells had peeled back the layers of the sky to reveal a, a boiled blue color, which is the first pretty line and yeah. of many of many. So like, line. yeah, so Paul and George are sitting uh, or wait, yes, Paul and George are uh, sitting on the floor in um, Paul's house and John comes over and knocks on the window and makes a silly face and climbs in through the window and and everything about him seems exaggerated like a caricature. And it's it's a very cute introduction to especially if, you know, you're familiar with John's performances in. Um, the movies especially you're like yep that sounds like John Lennon
2: yeah absolutely and this would have if people are interested I um I I did uh kind of in prep like I knew some of the Beatles history but I kind of cracked open my big Beatles biography by Bob Spitz it's just called the Beatles mm-hmm. and the annoying part is I lugged this on vacation it's about um yeah. like how many pages is this like a thousand pages basically. And the only part I really was interested in was this kind of beginning first couple of years. Um, so I really only needed to read like a hundred pages, maybe, not even. But anyway, but at this point, if you're situating it, this really would be the summer of 1957 to the summer of 1958. And that's kind of that first year of, of Paul and John's relationship when John had a band called the Quarrymen. It was a skiffle band, which was kind of a craze in Liverpool at the time. But he was also obsessed, as Paul and George and all those boys his age were, with rock and roll, which is an emerging sound, all out of America, pretty much. And they were listening to that on the radio um, uh, radio station called Radio Luxembourg, which was kind of an, not the BBC, which was a state-sponsored radio station. I'm going in too deep. But anyway, um, that's kind of where you see them. As a, John's got a band. Paul has like recently joined. And you get a little flashback of that famous meeting at the Walton Village Fete in July of 57. And it kind of takes off from there. And George, of course, is there, but he's not in the band yet. Um, and, I, and I just right. love, along with um, how you're saying she illustrates John, her illustration of George, and this is, I love as well.
0: Mm. Would it be unfair to describe the dynamics here as John Lennon is mean to everybody, Stuart Sutcliffe is mean to Paul and George, and Paul is only occasionally mean to George? That's like kind of the hierarchy here.
1: Well, because George, yeah, I think that's true, and and George is um the youngest, of course, um of the you know of the members of the band at this time. I don't know. I had to think about it because I don't know how accurate the portrayal of Stuart Sutcliffe is. To be, he died at age twenty one from a brain hemorrhage, so it's like yeah. very um hard to know who he was as a person. But yeah, this feels like on point for a, like a Beatles characterization, like. You know, yeah, John's mean to everyone does sound about right, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's... Paul's just kind of like uh, admiring of John, whereas George is admiring of everyone because he's the youngest, even though everyone acknowledges he is extremely talented, which he was. So, <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. So there's dynamics at play here where, right, Paul is definitely just completely head over heels infatuated with John who is portrayed as being kind of charismatic and also a little bit um, unpredictable in his like demeanor or like attitude at any time. And there's this thing where I, I, I think you see a lot of this, a lot of Stuart from Paul's perspective, because Paul does not like Stuart. And one of the dynamics at play here is that John has kind of his art friends yeah. and his music friends. And Paul's and Paul's not even like, he, you know, John probably has music friends who are not in contact with Paul as well, because he he knows a lot of people. But there's this, like, whole kind of aspect of his life that Paul is just, like, not even part of, and Stuart kind of represents that, I feel like, despite the fact that he also plays music, right? And um, it seems like Paul kind of resents Stuart for that. Not that Stuart, in this fanfic, goes out of his way to, like, make friends with Paul either. But he, after, like, half of a fanfic of, like, Stuart seeming like an ax- like an asshole... Um, actually he kind of reaches out once or twice to Paul with like, like kind of a sympathetic moment or two, which kind of takes you, the reader, aback. Um,
1: well, you know, that's the thing though, is this is told from Paul's perspective. right? So, and, and you can tell, I think you can tell early on, I mean, maybe this is just me having, knowing the author has the historical context and me having it as well, but like Paul is clearly has bias. Oh yeah. He's in love with John. <laughs> I mean, you know that right off the bat because like, it, I don't know, I don't even remember what the first line is, but I think as soon as John climbs in that window and meets George, like Paul is like looking at him, admiring him, like blah, blah, blah. You know I mean, you
0: that's know. just straight out of Clarissa explains it all, right? John like <laughs> climbing in through the window probably happens like every night.
1: Right, right. <laughs> yeah, it's
2: really neat because what what I like about that is even if I don't buy that John and Paul would have had any kind of romantic relationship, especially this early on, like you'll see in most make, McL- they call it McLennan is the ship. You'll see in most McLennan fix, usually how that's structured is that John and Paul bond deeply over rock and roll and the loss of their mothers, which we'll talk about happens in this, but then it's like kind of the pressure and the proximity of becoming the Beatles that forces them together in most fanfic. But So this is like kind of unique in that and that Paul is like attracted to John in a romantic way right off the bat. Um, But I do like that even if you don't sort of buy that, it does kind of like in interviews and and books, there's definitely, as you guys said, um, it's true to life that Paul was definitely um, kind of fascinated and like totally charmed by John and like John's other like school friends and other people say that about him at that age. And and the fact that, like, all of these guys, as soon as they joined this band and were obsessed with rock and roll, like they totally forgot school, like they just completely skived off. John and Paul. And I think George all failed their they call O levels, which is like, um, I can't remember if that's like end of high school exams. I think it is. And John, right. John wasn't going to be allowed to because he went to this school called core bank it doesn't matter but it's like kind of middle school and then you're supposed to either go to grammar school which is where paul and george are at a hundred feet away from this art school paul and george were smart enough to get into this grammar school um but john was basically going to have to be a dropout but his aunt mimi marched him over to the art school and was basically like you're putting my nephew in your school she was like a force of nature and you see her a little bit in this fic but um yeah as soon as they joined the band, like all of them just completely stopped school altogether. And we were obsessed with this band and especially John and Paul. And I think that's where a lot of that um, dynamic between Stuart and Paul comes from in real life as well. Cause Paul will tell you that he was jealous of Stuart and John's relationship. Exactly. As you said, Amato, cause John has this like art artsy thing going on with Stuart that he just does not have with Paul. But at that time, Paul and John were kind of, Taking John's band, which was not serious or good at all, the Quarrymen. And like they found <laughs> yeah. kind of like a soulmate or a simpatico like goal. Like they both wanted to be a rock and roll pop star. And like no one else was really had that ambition except the two of them. And that's what ended up pushing the band to this kind of next level. I don't remember where I was going with that, but that, I think that <laughs> dynamics between Stuart and Paul is kind of reflective of real life. So I, I do like that she put that in there.
1: Yeah, I like that you mentioned that because that was sort of a question of mine is like not knowing much about Stuart Sutcliffe to begin with. Um, And I like that from the jump, you kind of have these dynamics, like ones that, you know, you can take from real life from, you know, interviews and then extrapolate on. Like um, as soon as John climbs in the window, he meets George. Um, It says John hadn't brought his guitar with him. And I'm like, of course he didn't. You know, he's just, he's just roaming around. He's doing yeah. John things. He's not thinking ahead. Um, He tries to play his Pauls, but it's restrung so that he can play it left-handed because Paul is left-handed and that's how he played his guitars. And I'm like, details, 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 you know, like just these, these little details that, you know, people who know the Beatles know, and it's very delightful to see them. And it's almost immediately after that, that uh, it says, as ever, Paul was effortlessly fascinated by John. Heavy half-lidded eyes, forearms as hard as wood, the melting slouch of his oiled hair from the damp heat of the summer day. John twisted a smirk around, oh John twisted a smirk around the mouth organ, blah blah blah. It's like just little things where you're like, Paul is paying so much attention to everything John does. and of course, he's effortlessly fascinated. so you just have that right at the beginning of the story. Yeah, and I think it's an excellent lead-in for the the whole tone of the narrative.
2: Yeah, she's great with metaphor. That's something we could talk about at some point. It's like her metaphors are awesome.
0: So um, because this story is so focused on kind of daily life and establishing these character dynamics, it's a little hard for me to describe it in terms of a story progressing. But is there anything specific that you two want to talk about in kind of this early part of the story when all that stuff is more or less getting hashed out? Um. Maybe, maybe up until like Paul and John's first big fight over at, that's at John's place, right? And Stuart's there too. Uh,
2: is it, let's see. Yeah, I have a little outline here too. Um, I would say just initially like in the early stuff, I a uh, a quick note would be that, um, I think she goes out of her way a little bit to, um, point out some features of like post-war, um, England or post-war Northern England. Like, they have this hangout house, which is an old council house, which I think she oh, yeah. says was, like, wreckage, like, probably after a bomb. Because um, I don't know how much it really figures into their personalities, but I think it's kind of inextricable that all the Beatles were born either during or directly, maybe George, directly after the Blitz. Like, the Germans were bombing the UK. So, all around... Um, Especially Northern England, because those were the manufacturing hubs at the time. Like Manchester and Liverpool, both were big. Um, where England like made the stuff that they needed for war. Um, so she goes out of her way to describe, kind of like I think there's a line about I don't know wreckage or there's that council house that um, had been destroyed probably in the Blitz. And even in the actual biography, they the um, the first one of the first practice grounds at the Quarrymen. Practice that was at one of the guy's houses like under an old uh above ground bomb shelter so i think there's just some little details in there about like uh how the world is kind of emerging post-war and that maybe that kind of informs mm-hmm. the feel of it a little bit i thought that was kind of cool
1: there's also just a lot of like um i know set dressing like is that what you call it like details of the environment mm-hmm. like it's it feels like a really well-built universe and space and it is directly referential to how liverpool was at the time you know um they go down to the river mercy and they draw with bits of charcoal on these like big slabs of rock which i know that they actually did and it's not just that but it's like they describe what's drawing what's being drawn um you know like under John's hand, an elephant emerged and Stuart drew a giraffe. And you just imagine these pictures that are blooming to life, but also the scenery. Uh, it reminded me a lot of the movie Across the Universe, because they make direct reference to that in that film where um, you know, the character draws the picture of the the girl he's in love with down on those rocks in the same way. That's cool.
0: I think I might want to read a selection from this, and sometimes these scenes kind of merge into each other and it's hard to know when to start or when to stop but here's the part of something that's a little bit significant in the relationship development the start of that scene and also has some good examples of that kind of set dressing you described it Tori, tori or like the, the kind of uh concrete details there and also i think of the way in which these people are communicating which is rather sharp and unpleasant a lot of the time paul rode his bicycle over to percy street on a saturday morning found john and stewart up on the roof Stuart had his legs hanging over the side, heels talking on the building, a sketchbook across his lap. John was throwing bits of gravel at wheeling black birds. Paul went into the building through the broken front door, climbed up every stair and out of the trap door onto the roof, his hands scuffed by the rough tar paper. "'Hey, John,' Paul said. John whipped his arm sideways, and across the way a bird squawked and exploded with a flurry into the air. He looked back at Paul with that familiar half-annoyed flatness in his eyes. What are you doing here? John asked, largely uninterested. Paul flinched under his skin. His mouth made a smile. That's such great writing. Mm-hmm. That, that place we're playing tonight, the pub? I forgot the name. Whores and bastards, and John's lip curled, a gouging kind of look. Paul felt his face grow hot for some reason. Stuart sighed extravagantly, nod looking up from his sketchbook. The horse and bridle, actually. Bridle, horse and bridle, actually. Over in King Street, yeah? Sure, Stuart said, as areas if it were no more than an opinion. <laughs> Paul scowled at the neat curve of his back, his down tilted face. Stuart never did anything but draw and draw and draw. And then they start yeah. to get into an argument from there, which is somewhat significant. But I, I just think I think it's notable both for the description and presumably, you know, one has to think the author probably likes these characters. If not these people at least the characters that she's writing about. And, you know, I see nothing in here that makes me think that she's trying to villainize or be unsympathetic to Paul or George or, you know, John or Stuart. And yet she spends a lot of this making them, having them do little petty jabs and like little aggressions at each other. It, I feel like I, as an author might be, it feels a little bit hard to write to me.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, Cause you're right that, all those characters are so kind of sharp, and they don't pull their punches with each other. And I think, as a reader, um, it works because it's in Paul's point of view, and the writing is is good enough that I think um, that uh, the writer tr- can trust the reader enough to kind of read into that this color through Paul's lens. Um, and also, I think it works because in that at that time. Um, and in Northern England, particularly, like you hear Paul and John talk about how like they, especially Paul now that he survived, talk about how he wishes they had um, basically talked more about their feelings and told each other how much they meant sure. to each other and that they never said, I love you. I think there's like a famous event where in the middle of Beatlemania, they were in this hotel room in Miami and there was a big storm. And they were probably super high, possibly, John's as well, where they they finally talked about the deaths of their mothers for the first time, which is really the, I think you get that at the end of this, obviously is like that first really deep bonding glue between them. Um, but that they never really talked about. And it's something to do with that generation and that part of England, that part of England still has sure. a reputation of, it's almost like a New York city where like you get off the train in Manchester and somebody tells you to go fuck you go yourself. is like it's kind of the impression that people yeah. have of like Northern England. So like, and and then teenage boys of that age. On top of that, like they were just really hard on each other. And if you read, I was reading this biography again about the development of how the Quarrymen eventually pared down and then became the Beatles. It's like especially when Paul joined, John just kind of stopped. Um, he just got serious about it and basically just fired all his friends. You know, until they couldn't be in the band anymore. Or one of them got like really sick. I think was like meningitis, and he just out of the band they weren't gonna wait for him he wasn't good enough anyway so like i don't know i guess that kind of like being really sharp and kind of mean to each other um i almost kind of appreciated because it was like yeah these guys weren't yeah. nice and you almost like couldn't be to succeed especially i mean it was just tough growing up like i know i'll stop myself here in a second but john john being raised by his aunt from about the age of five on they had they had a comfortable what you call middle-class upbringing. But it was really, uh, Paul and especially George were very like, lived in government housing, uh, which would you call a council house or a council estate. George's dad was a bus driver. Um, And especially after Paul's mother's death, Mary, um, she was a nurse and that income went away. And Paul's dad didn't make that much because the cotton industry had really um, collapsed after the war ended. Um, so it was like pretty like rough growing up in that area, but like you know it was it was rough and tumble for sure.
1: No, I I think that's actually um, a lovely you know way to kind of describe what this author has encompassed. Um, I like how you mentioned that you know it was just sort of like the natural, not natural, but like the expected way that these boys were mean to each other and poked and prodded each other because they lived in that region and they were expected to be these young men you know all of these expectations of who they were supposed to be and the more I think about it I'm like well it's not that different from you know when I was growing up I remember you know the difference between hanging out with my girlfriends versus my guy friends like guy friends were always like being assholes and that was like how you related and I like I never really understood it but like this is very similar to that it made me think you know, not only do we have you know the the world that's being built up in this fan fiction which I think is very accurate right we also have the like these characters who at first I was like oh well John's just an asshole but like it, no like he was expected to be an asshole and that is actually a really
0: excellent point Yeah. And that scene that I started reading, it leads into this big fight um, between, I mean, relatively big between, I mean, I say relatively big, except then it kind of bounces back from it. It's significant in terms of how Paul is thinking about John or how he's approaching John, maybe. One of the threads in this fanfic is that Paul's kind of George's booster. And he's like, George needs to join the band. George needs to come along. George is really, really, really good. And he kind of pushes that to, um, to John here. And John's response is, you know, He's never joining the band because, A, he's too young, B, I said so, and three, fuck you. And um, the author's writing is much, much better than that. And it's like the way that she gets across this sort of like really just distinct meanness in this like bad mood that John is in here is really great. But then, you know, Paul runs off. Paul runs off crying, basically, like John is just really savage to both George and him for even daring to cross John's will. In this instance. Oh yeah.
1: Well, I should have specified it's not just that John was expected to be an asshole. He was distinctly John an asshole. Yes. Right. Not just,
0: <laughs> Paul yeah. is expected uh, to be an asshole. He can only sometimes manage it.
1: Right, right. Like Paul has his own reservations in this story, but like John yeah, John has that meanness that I think it, it does feel very characteristic.
2: Yeah. When you when you read kind of about their personalities or watch them in the interviews, like they're all smart. They're like they're all very witty, but John in particular, like, very, seems to come across as like in real life as like very, um, uh, not afraid to like confront. Like he's very uh, brusque. There's another word I'm looking mm. for, but also very um, intelligent, and he can really pinpoint mm. insecurities. And like he oh, was yeah. like when the Beatles um, performed for the first time for the Queen, um, it was brilliant. He tells the people in cheaper seats to clap and uh the rest of you to rattle your jewelry which is like
0: wild
2: that like he would say that in front of the queen but that just goes to like show like his his like shrewdness and wit whereas like paul is like known for his charm and paul was like very good at. there's a line in this story that references this where he recognizes that mimi john's aunt mimi doesn't like him and he's not used to that because he's used to being able to charm people Part of that is that like beautiful face that he has, which John horns in on with that line. Um he calls him a cow eyed Nancy Boy, I think is what he calls yeah. him. Yeah. So sort of like Paul's insecurity about his kind of feminine looks. Um, but yeah, he's used to being able to kind of charm and manipulate people and get them get what he wants, which seems to be fairly true to life. Um and people kind of even characterize they think Paul's like the dumb pretty one, which Paul is not dumb at all he was like fourth out of like hundreds of kids to to get into this grammar school or there was some, something like that um and of course he was like in the end um like kind of the most important productive beatles like musically arguably mm-hmm. um anyway yeah
1: yeah no i think it's obvious that like yeah all of the the Beatles are very intelligent but like like we said before there is also an element of playing a character i like what you point out about john though because it's like. He had this scathing wit. And when it was directed, when he was punching up, it worked. Punching down, which he does often in this fic, (laughs) it feels not great. But Paul nonetheless is attracted to him. And I think it's kind of a lot of tension there because this is how this fic goes. A lot of tension because... Paul is like, does John really like me? Like, I don't know. And then he hangs out with Stuart and Stuart doesn't like me. And then he ignores me for days on end. That's kind of the, I don't know, the how this whole thing starts in a way.
0: Well, out of this fight, um, John sends Paul fleeing and practically crying. And Stuart comes down later and right. badgers him some more. And like they get into a little physical scuffle. And that's that's when Stuart kind of has this reach out thing where at one point he's like, look, you you just you can't talk to him when he's in this kind of mood, you know, like, why are you even trying? Like, you can't take it personally. He's just in a mood. But coming out of this scene, I think it's important both for Paul to have seen John being just cruel, like specifically cruel. And also because in conversation with Stuart, it's made very clear that it's he's not hiding his feelings for John very well. Stuart clearly knows that he's like in love with John. And that raises the question here of like, does John know? Cause it seems like maybe John might too. Like, um, but that's going to be relevant going forward.
1: Right. And I forget exactly what happens after that. I mean, it's sort of like Paul runs home. There's a lot of like times where Paul is just reflecting on how he feels about John. Mm-hmm. And, I don't know. I feel like those are maybe like in an incredibly well-written fanfiction, maybe the weaker moments. I mean, that's not saying a lot because this is just a really good fanfic, but he just kind of goes and he's like, oh, I'm so sad now. John doesn't like me, you know, or maybe it's not because I don't know. It's very teenaged. Maybe it's totally fine. I don't know.
0: The next major thing that springs to mind because it ties in so much with this like how Paul is expected to be like how he's expected to perform masculinity and like how these relationships go and how he's like grappling with what he's feeling and feeling shame for it. He ends up in a fight with a guy who hates John, which can't be that hard. And, you know, <laughs> this guy who hates John, whose name I forget, he has like five buddies with him. And also he accuses John oh, of being shit. queer. Yeah. Right. That one,
1: oh my God.
0: And Paul feels like he needs to defend John's honor. And he's like, no, he's not. And he gets beaten up. And then, you know, John ends up finding him or or vice versa or something. And obviously John's anger on his behalf and John kind of like has to like help patch him up and get him home and that sort of thing. But also there's this thing where Paul, you know, half delirious is saying like, you know, they, they said they said you were I forget what the words are, but we don't need those words. He said they said you were queer, but you're not. And like John just doesn't respond. And like Paul repeats that a couple of times and John just kind of lets that sit Um. And obviously that's important for many reasons, but it's so sad, like both both the physical violence, but also the like Paul, like the, the shame that you'd expect Paul to be having for his feelings, which he has. And like the way that he, you know, kind of, I think in, in a way it's a relief to like get into a physical fight so that he can like deny them in like a physical way that also punishes himself. Because that's kind of the, yeah. the mental mode that he's in, right?
1: This was like a, yeah, super poignant seeing it and i think very relatable you know um
2: yeah i think it could have been i mean
0: hope hopefully not that relatable but yes right well
2: yeah i mean it, it's um it has happened and it's like it almost could have been cliche but i think especially yeah in the aftermath in the kitchen where paul goes back in and john's kind of asking who did this happened?" Mm-hmm. um yeah how paul kind of asking without asking i guess he's pretty much straight up asking but it's like, yeah. you know enough about Paul, I think, at that point to read into like, it's almost like he's hoping, I mean, I don't know how I read it. It's almost like he's hoping John will acknowledge it, because Paul kind of knows there's maybe some feelings that he shouldn't have for John at that point. I don't know, or or I don't know how Paul would have reacted if John would have admitted it at that point. But I thought it was well, well, kind of ambiguous.
0: It's very ambiguous. One could imagine Paul feeling relief if John had said, like, of course, I'm bloody not. Like, because then Paul would have been able to be like, okay. Like I will just suffer in silence or whatever, but yeah, but John does not say that
1: there's well, you know, um it's Paul asking if you know if John is queer, you know saying but you're not um as he says it, it's like there was a strange giddy tone in it, but you're not. And it's like, yeah, because like he does also, yeah, he does also want to hear. He wants a lot of different things. And I, I think this tension is so well done in the story, you know? He's, uh, he's beating up these guys basically for insulting, or he's taking on these guys, they basically beat him up, for insulting John because, you know, it's not just about calling John queer because they say a lot of other really bad things, right? Like, I mean, about him being queer, but like they're, you know, slurs, et cetera. Yeah. So you could take it as oh no i don't want to acknowledge that truth or i could you would take it as well these guys are clearly being insulting and i you know i'm defending him for that reason and i think it works pretty well because like that yeah that giddy is such a good word in that context you're like yeah no i i think i mean you know really do what you said about him i think he wants him to say yeah yeah let's make out yeah right sure well of,
0: of course he does but but one could imagine there would also be a relief if he said no. And the fact that he says nothing just leaves Paul, like, hanging in the wind, oh, like, sure, completely. Sure. That's com- a good point, yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah, that was a great scene. I, th- I think then after that, we pretty much go to the gig.
0: Yeah, yeah. So they, uh, I forget what gig this specifically is. and.
2: <laughs> this is one that they, I tried to look it up. I don't think it's real, so it's one that, um, the one that Paul was asking Stuart and John about Stuart's flat, which is this gig at the Horse and Bridle, which is the one that Paul's like. I'm bringing George, because um, he basically, I think he said basically, it's my band too, and George should be in the band. Um, so yeah, I did. I did Google like Horse and Bridle, Beatles or Quarrymen, and I couldn't find anything. So I think it's just kind of made up. But yeah,
0: yeah. So in summary, they have a really good performance that night. And John, you know, is is eventually like allowed to play basically because like the other the other guitarist, what, drank too much and just like, you know, leaves the stage or whatever. George, yeah. uh, but he's but he steps in and they have a great night. And afterwards, they're like celebrating and getting very, very drunk and that sort of thing. And eventually, Paul, um, what Paul heads home by himself, is that? about it
2: i think he takes george out of there with him like paul kind of like is drunkenly like just really feeling all the feelings for sean i think <laughs> and he's like "Uh oh i need to get out of here right now. and i think um he takes george because i think like geographically so paul's um in allerton suburb and is not speak um Anyway, I think that, but supposedly they were on the same bus route, which is how they met. So that might be the excuse. But I think George walks out of there with him at least for a while. And then they split yep. ways. And then, that, yeah, okay, that's right.
0: I found the, the spot. Cemetery. Yeah. Yeah. It's walking by the cemetery. Right. And okay. then.
1: After, like, I, I want to be clear. There's a somewhat, you know, this is rock and roll, right? Or we'll skiffle, whatever. Skiffle rock. Yeah. Um, somewhat evocative performance where they are like rolling their backs on each other through sweaty damp clothing. Anyway, yes, walking through the cemetery is what comes next.
0: And then John has followed Paul. And for one thing, John is wasted. Um, But for another thing, by this time in the story, you're also kind of used to John being, like I said, unpredictable and kind of like, you're never quite sure what mood he's in. And in this case, he's described Oh, yeah, they have that line there. John moved into the blocky shadow of the church and grinned at him. That huge, terrifying grin of his that could mean a thousand different things. And and he starts saying things like, well, um, I'll read those next couple lines. Paul swallowed and sucked in sucked on the inside of his cheek to keep his expression clean of any soused idiotic glee. John had followed him. Can't shake you, can I? Paul said, trying for a bit of levity. His throat seemed to be getting smaller the nearer John came. You don't want to, John told him. He stepped too close, still tugging at Paul with his grin, his dare-filled eyes. You don't want to shake me at all, do you? And then there's a line that I really like. It was important not to look at John for too many seconds in a row. And then Paul's like flicking his eyes around into different places. That's a yeah. very that's a very relatable line when you've got like an adolescent crush.
1: Totally. <laughs> well, I love it too, because John is portrayed as being so charismatic and compelling as well as confident, right? Like in, in Paul's eyes, John is very confident, right. even though we can sort of see the cracks as the reader, which I think is some of the best character writing I've seen to see that Paul reveres John so much and is almost like at his whim, but that we know, even from Paul's perspective, as a reader, we see that he is insecure.
2: That's mm-hmm. the best kind of writing, because it's so hard to do, like to kind of be in the character's point of view, um, and, but to put those little things in that maybe even the character's not totally aware of or taking note of, but that you mm-hmm. as a reader, because you know the larger context, do notice and can draw meaning from. Like such great writing because that's the level you're at where you are stop trying to over explain or shoehorn things in like writers and so many of us do where you're trying really too hard. We can get to that level where like you yeah. trust your reader like that's. that's awesome.
1: <laughs> when I was a young writer, I used to make the mistake. I'm sure I've mentioned this on the podcast of like assuming my reader would know what I was doing because I knew what I was doing. Um, and I think a lot of other writers make the a, a mistake of over explaining. So to walk that fine line of, I have shown you this and it is clear, I think it just takes an incredible intelligence um, of like, you know, human interpretations of things. Like you have to know your readers very well. And I think this person does quite well.
2: I think that's like, it might be harder in original fiction to do that because really it's almost like, fan fiction and especially RPF kind of gives you a structure to do that because we all have this common understanding if you're especially if you're a Beatles aficionado, like where the Beatles are, where are they going, where they would be at this point in time. I don't know, that, that particular character moment I don't think is um, depends on like real life events. But there is some like dramatic irony that you can probably do in fan fiction and RPF that you like can't do original fiction.
0: Well, to keep the story moving, what happens here in the graveyard is that John basically accosts Paul, tells him, I know you're in love with me, let's make out. And they yep. do that, and they have a sexual encounter. They get each other off. And it's all very drunken and... um, Yes, the author says it was messy and uncoordinated.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. It's kind of dreamy, too. I like that the last image you get as that scene closes out is Paul kind of like staring at the moon. As all of this mm-hmm. kind of happening in sort of this immediate but distant way and yeah like i like the the tone of
0: you know the next morning paul wakes up and there and he's sort of like out of it from this point and if he was sort of like obsessed and mooning over john before it is nothing compared to where he's at after that right because
1: like john basically leaves him wanting more and you know, it leaves the audience wanting more too, because I think it's a really, you know, I always feel weird talking about sex scenes, but I think it's a really well done one. Um, And you're like, well, but that wasn't everything they could do together. <laughs> <laughs> so you get this page break and then John, or sorry, Paul wakes up in the bedroom he shares with his brother and wreathed in a dream about submarines that clung to his mind like smoke or moss. So you've got this future hand about, you know, yellow submarine and everything. But then you've also got this this dream. And you're like, oh, gosh, like you almost feel just as entrenched in this as Paul is at this point, just from that little page break.
0: There's this long scene of Paul hanging out with George after that, too. And it's nice both because when, when Paul and George are alone together, that's the only time anyone's going to let George say anything. So at least you get some like, you know, some George conversation here and he seems cool um but also paul's totally out of it um there's like george is trying to talk to him about um like elvis and stuff and paul's just like yeah yeah and like totally you know george has to call him out on not listening there's also of course the obvious scene where um george kind of looks nervous for a moment and says it was good last night yeah george said a little piece of electricity went through Paul's spark of panic before he realized that George was talking about the show. Yeah. Paul shrugged, said, you were all right.
1: <laughs> I mean, of course he was, but, oh, man. Which is
2: great because that panic moment, obviously, is was like the, you know, author playing with that. <laughs> then also just, it's like, Paul, you realize from that scene, like how good they were and how amazing George was. It was like his big break, and you know, in that, mm-hmm. that and- Leverpudlian way. Paul's like, it yeah, was all right.
0: George has Paul right. promise to like talk to John again about getting him in the band. And uh, you know, George totally totally blows him off. There's some kind of line somewhere where um Paul promises to to talk to John about that, because it was easy to say that. It was easy to say that to George, like, yeah, I'll talk to John. <laughs> like that. Mm-hmm. But even though Paul's basically in his corner, he has basically no control over John or any decisions John makes. So
1: Right. And this is the point where you kind of perceive there's been kind of a change in Paul from his obviously, like I mentioned before, we get his attraction to John in like the first scene. But in the first scene, he was like, let me introduce you to George Harrison, this incredible guitar player, like blah, blah, blah. And now he's like kind of blowing George off because all I can
0: think about is John after that encounter. (laughs) And then it seems like maybe... John's avoiding him, or at least certainly not seeking him out. Like, Paul is definitely, definitely seeking out John. And it's a while before yeah. they even, like, run into each other again. Uh, but when they do, it's at, is that the the place where they hang out? It was, it, it was someone's house? Band, I
2: think it's Paul's house. Ha- Paul kind of, yeah, it's just, like, suffering. And then he has to wait until, I think band <laughs> practice rolls around at his place because his dad's out for work, so they use the, uh, the living room. Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: Yep. And it be, right before that it says Paul developed this sense of John like a mechanical rabbit at the dog races, barely out of reach. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he just doesn't see him for a while, but it's like this obsession, you know. It's it's more, well, maybe it's not more than teenage crush. Teenage crushes are like that, actually. Yeah, I re- I remember some moments <sighs> like like that. Totally. Actually, sometimes I was impressed with how well Paul held it together when John was being such a fucking tease.
0: Yeah. There's this scene in in Paul's place where like they, they end up in a room together when Paul's going to look for some records and John follows him um, and everybody else is in the other room or whatever. And John basically starts teasing if you're being nice or um, cruelly mocking if you're being if you're less generous there, Paul, for being in love with him, with John, um, and Paul has to remind John, you came after me that night, which catches, catches John off guard for a moment. But then he still ends up saying like, oh, yeah, (laughs) the line is, I hope a quick toss off might stop you gazing at me like some soppy girl. More fool me, eh? But then Paul confronts him and is like, look, this is not one sided. Obviously, like they kind of get a little bit physical for a moment. And Paul extracts a promise from John to meet him. Um... Like that night or or some night over at the the burned down government building.
1: Also wanna say something about this scene. Oh Just, please. Like it's so well done because actually, like it feels like John has the power at first, right? Mm-hmm. But Paul extracts the power <laughs> because like John says something like, Oh gosh, yeah, there it here it is. Um yes. So there's something like John saying, oh, that's, you know, starting it doesn't mean John began because Paul's accusing him of starting it. Then his voice his voice withered suddenly as if he had been singing for three hours instead of just one. He looked down at Paul, his eyes shuttered, and his mouth making an unstable curve. It doesn't mean anything. Liar, Paul thought, or Paul said without thinking, almost breathless. It felt so good in his mouth that he said it again, liar, and then pulled John down and kissed him. That's also a good line. Right? Yeah, and then great... he just keeps repeating liar in his head because he's realized that this is all John's defense mechanism. And I just, like, there's such a shift in Paul's mentality. He's not he's not chasing the mechanical rabbit anymore. He, like, he knows he has it, you know? I, <laughs> I love it. It's well it's, done. It's
2: great, too, because in that scene, so, that, yeah, they're having band practice. They take a tea break. And then Paul goes upstairs to get some records and probably to just like, it there. but it's as a reader, I feel like it's that thing again, where you're reading into to John because John follows him upstairs and kind of corners mm-hmm. Paul. And yes, you're right, Amato. John has the power there. And you can also kind of read into like thinking John didn't have to do that. Like he could have just stayed downstairs, but he's clearly as caught up in this in his head and just wants to see Paul or just like mess with him because he's as obsessed. And so he has like, He's kind of as powerless as well to just, like, want a, want a follow-up to this or something. He co- probably kind of knows that something's going to happen if he goes up to that bedroom and closes the door behind him, which is a great moment. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Right. There's this subtlety, right? Because from Paul's perspective, he's a confused teenager. But when you look at it, you know, reading this, you know, an adult looking at from the outside in and not you know even though you're in Paul's mind you see what John is doing and you know that his words aren't true right like I think that's kind of the wonderful part of the writing is you're like yeah that's John's not telling the truth we just know (laughs) that you know
2: yeah like they're both kids but to to Paul John is such like this like it's only a year older but he's like such so much older so much more mature but yes exactly right Tori like to us, it's like oh, these are just two kids in Liverpool dealing with this crisis. Mm.
0: So as promised, John and Paul do meet up for a rendezvous over at the the old government building, and they meet up. They walk there. They have a sexual encounter again, and it's much less drunken. I I wouldn't swear that there's no alcohol coursing through John's body, but like, um, it's <laughs> it's much more sober. And it's also, in my mind, less interesting. It's, it's like a, it's a continuation, but it's not like the drama of like the, you know, initial encounter. Um, it's just sort of this playing out and the author allowing them to have like a good moment where they're actually kind of like trying to be nice and generous sexually to each other before things are going to go south very shortly.
2: Yeah, it's very kind of sweet at the end. where I think they're literally smoking afterwards. There's a bit kind of, of an afterglow moment where they're both. Happy, which is nice. Yeah, then they have this little exchange. John pushed him up and back, stroking his fingers across Paul's throat and then taking his hands away. He rummaged for a pair of cigarettes and lit both on the same match before passing one to Paul. He sat down on the floor and smoked for a moment in a dazed silence, blinking at each other dumbly. Eventually, Paul said in a scraped up voice, Will you come over tomorrow? Today? Ordinarily, he would have flinched at hearing himself say that, but his body was still humming with satisfaction and nothing else could intrude. John exhaled through his nose like a dragon. Can't get enough, can you? (laughs) Suppose not, Paul answered. John let the corners of his mouth curl up. Well, maybe you'll get lucky, John said with a beatific smile. So it's It's like this nice, like, John's actually nice to him. So the scene closes on like a really kind of sweet, promise of like this can work. This is
0: okay. Yeah. though so on the other hand, the scene really closes on John walking away, Paul watching him go and waiting to see if John's going to turn around and look back at him. And John does not.
2: Yeah, that's true. So it's all it's like kind of bittersweet in that way, like yeah. well- change, but maybe there's a there's a little hint there that yeah, I maybe mean, it actually has changed.
1: It's interesting too because like, yeah, something about this scene, like um what y'all were talking about is like John's still being John. He's still like, you can't get enough, can you? It's like, come on, man. Like, he's still trying to hold the power, right? Right. Um. But yes. Um. And I think that's part of the not looking back. And that's what, because we're in Paul's perspective, um, causes Paul a lot of anxiety after this.
0: Yeah. Because after that, it does kind of seem like John's avoiding him. And Paul is, of course, trying to track him down very heavily. Stuart has to turn him away at one point, be like... You know, he doesn't like you following him around. Um, and Paul's like, you don't know what you're talking about. And so it's like, whatever. And it, like days and days pass like this, too.
1: Yeah. Well, it's because um, John is living with Stuart at this, or staying with him at this time. So Paul keeps coming to their shared apartment, um, not I finding think,
2: him. Yeah. I don't know how many days, actually. But I think it's just the next day. Yeah. He tracks down Stuart. Stuart tells him to fuck off. The <laughs> direct day after that, Paul comes back to Stuart, and I think oh, that's when the two Stuart, days. Wow! So it's really like so we find out obviously that Julia, yep. John's mother, has been hit by a car. So to me, yeah. I read it. It's true. Maybe John would have ignored Paul, but there's kind of a possibility that that maybe John had intended to follow up with Paul, but that of course he didn't. So that was where I kind of.
0: Okay, yeah.
1: I, I thought it was longer. There's like a page break and it says a week or two, Stuart had said. Oh no,
0: wait, that's, that's before him the funeral. Saying. Sorry. That's oh, yeah, my yeah. bad.
1: Um that's not the right part. No, I think yeah, you're I right, just, Sarah. I thought I thought it was longer, but yeah, you're probably right.
0: Yeah, okay. So yeah, it's actually relatively shortly after this because we can't have our characters just be happy um that John's mother dies. And
1: well, and this is true to life. John's mother, yeah, but they, yeah. they particularly said it at this point i mean also because paul's mother passed away when he was young um i think from cancer i can't i don't know is that right sarah Mm -hmm. yeah um but then yes so you know uh john was raised by his aunt mimi i think we mentioned this before but his mother still lived in town so, yeah, she was hit by a car driven by an off-duty police officer and, and died when John was just 17.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think there was kind of some stuff where, like, yeah, obviously, so John, up until age five, I think, was with his mother, but she was just, like, a partier and just not very mature and not stable, and so that's why John went with Mimi, and, yeah, his dad was, like, a merchant seaman, I think, and just not, he kind of in and out of the picture, um, but... but so julia had a couple other men in her life and i think the family did not like that john was being exposed to these boyfriends so that's why mimi took john to a very stable household she was very practical like lady and then um but yeah julia was like she lived like a mile away and she was like the fun she would still come visit john most days and she's the one that taught him kind of music like she played the Mm -hmm. banjo and that john learned to play guitar with banjo chords which is something that Paul is the one who sort of taught him guitar chords. Um, but I think there might have been a time where maybe John didn't see Julia as, as much in his like early teen years and then was maybe in the process of kind of like growing closer to Julia. So that particularly makes the loss hard because I think he was like becoming more of like a right. almost like a friendship and more of a more of a closer bond with his mother. And then, yeah, she gets exactly smacked by a car and is very traumatic.
0: And Paul finds out from Stuart and Stuart tells him, like, give him space at least a couple of weeks. And Paul understands that he's right, that like what John needs to deal with right now is not a like sexual romantic entanglement like at this time. But he does come to the funeral and he feels weird about that because he wasn't invited. He didn't really know John's mother anyway. And it's kind of him seeing John in a very vulnerable, you know, like moment but he feels like he wants to do like some kind of gesture to show support of John. And I guess that's like the best thing he could come up with really.
1: Right. And well, I, you know, I think this is fairly accurate to the kind of like first love teenage romance. And like, as I, maybe something we haven't really specified much. We did talk about, you know, the defense of John around being queer, but like for people to actually be in, queer relationships and gay relationships at this time, like, oh my God, you know, that was unheard of. So I think maybe it felt extra special to Paul in this story. But um, it basically, before he shows up to the funeral, says Paul wasn't like eating or sleeping. Like he was so, I mean, not just obsessed with John, but like mostly distraught over what had happened to John and how much he cared about him. And I think that is like that's a lot, you know. like it's a lovely moment for the character in a way, but it's also, um, I don't know. It's like Paul feels like he's obsessed, right? yeah,
2: probably kind of reliving his mother's death too a little bit, greater.
1: yeah, yeah. I oh, was sorry. did we did interrupt you. just
2: no, that was all I had. I was gonna wait for a motto
0: <laughs> and it's a long time before he sees John again um there's a scene where it's him and george practicing music and george is like uh so are we still a band and paul's like of course we're still a band and george's like is john coming back and paul's like of course john's coming back and george's like when's when's john coming back and paul's like "Well, will wait as long as necessary it's his band and george's like okay uh let's let's play some music uh, yeah you gotta love george in this he's I just know. so like
1: faithful dedicated sweet he like, just he really wants to play with these guys yeah like him. he just <laughs> wants to be a musician like he's i don't know uh he's sort of in the background but at the same time like his character of just being like kind of like loving really comes through because everybody else is kind of a shit to each other mm. yeah
2: there's there's also i think a little moment in that scene where george even is like well if paul doesn't come back we could another band or, or there's something like that and paul's like there is right. no band without John." you know he's like a dick to george <laughs> or he says you're not even in the band that's what he says like oh, a vicious, yeah. that's oh. like really yeah it's kind of like that that's the meanest thing rolling paul down says to george him. oh yeah so you yeah. can kind of read into like how upset paul must be to be that cruel like shove that in george's face, and poor george just kind of and this is like right. george george's real personality seems to be very like just kind of let the storm blow he's just like if you have to be in a room with the egos of john lennon and paul mccartney for as long as george harrison has had to do like you just have to learn to like let that kind of blow over you i think and so i like at least that was me reading into like sort of the first of of many of these types of interactions where george has to be like All right, whatever <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah yeah, the line is uh, surprised, not anticipating such vehemence. George nodded again, ducking his head. Paul let out a breath that burned in his lungs and rubbed his fingers on the strings. He felt helpless and useless and angry at everything. Uh, but that was just the moment, just this black span of days. <laughs> like, yeah, it's like this, this, like adorableness of George to just, let it go and this is another one of those things like we said we can see john's character even though paul's perception is distorted and we can see george's character in the same way even though it's like lesser described it's just it's still there it's very present
0: and the next time they see john like it's not even him reaching out to them or vice versa they're at a club and John kind of, like, goes up on stage very, very drunk and seizes the microphone and starts singing about half a song before the actual lead singer demands it back and he gets kicked out of the club. And, um, I mean, Paul and George kind of, like, have to come and stop him from, like, just starting a barroom brawl and drag him out and be like, we'll take care of him. Like, we, we got him. We got this. Um, so, I mean, obviously and understandably, John's not in a good way. But it does eventually give him and Paul a chance to have a conversation about this stuff.
2: Yeah, I guess they end up, uh, after that, Paul, Paul says, we should get you home or something. And John's like, uh, something, you can find it. I can't remember what he says. But yeah, Paul takes John back to the McCartney house. Um, and Jim McCartney, Paul's father, wakes up and is kind of annoyed at the all this noise going on. And then realizes he says, it's John, Dad. Course, Jim McCarty has lost his wife. He like knows exactly what's going on with poor John and kind of
0: he's very sympathetic. Yeah, yeah. it's a really yeah. sweet
2: scene. Uh, well,
1: because we we knew early on, um, that yeah, Jim didn't like John at all. Like, it's that that's <laughs> that early line. It was like a Mimi hated Paul as much as, as yeah. Jim hated John or something like that. But in this moment, he is so empathetic. He's like, "Okay, you know, this poor kid. You're staying
0: the night. Like, we're gonna patch you up and yeah. you're staying the night. And, and it's, it's very sweet." Yeah, John's like, "I'm okay," and Jim's like, "No one said you're not okay. I just said you're staying the night." Like,
2: <laughs> yeah, kind of that stability, it's, like of a of a parent, like just yeah. yeah, it's not gonna dig into the emotional stuff, of John. I'm a mm-hmm. parent right now. I'm gonna tell you that you're staying, and that's kind of what John needed that.
0: But then, you know, that night, he, John and Paul get to, yeah, discuss, like, broach the subject that, I guess John didn't even know that Paul's mom was dead, but, like, he finds out now. And, you know, John, they they have kind of the the exchange you might expect in this sort of situation or fiction where John asks Paul, does it ever get better? And Paul says, not really, but you get more functional about it. um, And... It, but it's but it's a, a bonding moment very very different from the sexual encounters before between the two of them
1: right I I mean sorry this is a little bit before that but I I think it's similar it's something that I think is so wonderful about like you know when Jim realizes that you know it's John's mother's dead blah 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 it's like um Jim only sighed. I heard about your mother, he said to John. I didn't say I'm sorry, because all three of them knew exactly how much good that would do. You'll stay here tonight. Mm-hmm. So, like, sorry to back it up a little bit, but I just, you know, having experienced these sort of losses, like, that line of no one said I'm sorry because they all knew how much good it would do is just, I don't know. There's something really elegant at the writing of that, I think. Even though it seems simple, you know, it's just everything pieces together really well. Anyway, sorry. Moving on to, yes, uh, w- some more elegance, right, with the, you know, Paul and John finally
0: bonding in a real emotional way, mm-hmm. right? And but it's interesting leading from that into the last part of the fanfic because there's a sense that like everything's changed between them. But it means on the one hand, they like have, like you said, an emotional bond, like an actual emotional bond. That's not just like two teenagers hooking up. But on the other hand, it's not clear whether they're going to continue hooking up either. It's like the the situation, like the place that John's in, in his life, especially has just completely changed. And this kind of seems like, um, like Sarah, you mentioned them sort of like dedicating themselves to music, to the exclusion of all else, like in their actual biographical lives. And the context of the story, this seems to be when that switch is getting flicked in John's head. And like before this, he was he was doing art school stuff. He barely like he almost flunked out at one point because he got in so much trouble. But he wasn't not doing school. Um, But at this point, ending as the fanfic closes out, it seems more like um, he's like, OK, you know, it's morning. Let's play rock and roll. That's that's what we're doing. We're a mm-hmm. rock and roll band now
2: think like there's there's a there's a line in that scene a couple scenes before where they haven't seen john yet and paul and george are talking about the band i think the last um line of that was something like something to the fact that paul knew that he wasn't sure that he could save john that there was one thing he could save it was the band
0: oh yeah yeah so right. i feel like
2: that this kind of comes out of that thought that like Paul and John already had a lot in common. They already had like a shared love of rock and roll. They were already serious musically. They were probably at this point, although it doesn't say in the story, possibly starting to write songs together. But this thing that, that now John understands something in Paul and Paul understands something that John's going through right now. It's like that has like cemented this bond into something deeper and then we're going from there and there's kind of no coming back from that. And and in that scene, it's yeah, it's such a sweet scene. It's like, first of all, it's like George comes over and whenever George comes over, I'm just like, Oh George, he's like so wonderful. <laughs> and John doesn't, John isn't mean to George. George has a new guitar, which is exciting for him. And John, I think, uh, I think George hands it to John. Oh yeah. And then they start to play a song and it's just this really poetic language where I think, one of them starts, I think George has started to play the song and John's like, it doesn't go like that. It's a little bit rougher, which is like generally musically how John mm-hmm. is great at like roughing things up and making them, you feel things sort of viscerally. And anyway, I think that is that what that scene is about. It's just launching off from this point where there's no going back. It's like the two of them are now bonded in a way that they weren't before. And that's kind of the journey from that first scene where we see John climb through the window um, where we're, Paul's really at um, looking up at John, like physically and, you know, like in a hero worship way. And now they're looking right at each other kind of on an even level. So I like, I was thinking about that this morning. It's almost like a bookend scene of like, it's one year apart, still playing music in a room, but everything has sort of changed.
1: Yeah, no, it's a wonderful way to put it, you know, with the bookends. And I can't remember if this is an echo from a previous line, but when, George shows up at the door which I love because it's George is now showing up he's he's got this agency and yes. he's the one to bring the comfort and the peace to these people who have both lost so much um you know it's like uh somebody says it's a, uh yeah Paul says bit early isn't it George shrugged. never too early for rock and roll And it feels like it's an echo from a previous scene, but I don't know if it is, actually. I didn't bother to look. But, like, it feels like George is either way. He's unifying everyone here, and he's bringing the peace. And he's been such in the background for most of the story. And I think that's lovely because this might not work if you didn't know the Beatles, but you know. (laughs) You know George Harrison is so important to the Beatles. So you know that this is the start of the Beatles, George taking this place, unifying the Lennon-McCartney team and making the band essentially.
0: And that brings us to the actual end of the story. And I think I'm going to have to move us into our final thoughts here. And we... We begin with things that we might want to complain about, or things that we think might have been done better in the story. Could have been done better in the story. Before we end on our final praise of stuff that we like most. Do either of you want to start, or shall I begin with our uh, comments and criticism here?
2: Um, you can go if you got some stuff.
0: All right. I mean, I only have one thing, and I feel bad about it because I'm I'm not half the writer that this author is. I don't have concrete suggestions, but I do see on the live journal post where she originally posted it her saying this story kind of got away with me it was supposed to be much shorter like i i have documented proof that like it was only like 6000 words like a little bit ago and somehow it got this long and i can i can vaguely feel while reading this underneath the story the shape of a slightly smaller tighter story that could potentially have existed um And I'm not sure exactly what I would trim to get it there, but I feel like it could have been more controlled and more of just like a beautiful crystalline object. And the thing is that like, you know, the crust, like the extra stuff that doesn't need to be here is usually really good writing with like really good character moments. Like I, I don't see anything. I'm just like, oh, I didn't enjoy that. That was pointless. But, but I think the story could have been tighter one way or another if the author had had gone that route.
1: You know, Amato, I actually do agree with you in every sense of that, because every time I picked on a line that went, oh, that went a little overboard. I went, but it's so pretty. (laughs) So like one thing I wrote down where I was like, I'm not sure if this works was um, when George is holding his guitar like a father holding his dying child. I was like, that feels like a little too much. That's one line, by the way. And I pulled a lot of lines from the story that I thought were gorgeous. That one was just like, I'm not sure what they're going for there. But I will say it's interesting. It's like some things could have been reigned back, but I'm not sure exactly how because you have so much beautiful language. It's like it's clear the author wanted to use this metaphor of the dying child and holding the guitar. I think that's a wonderful metaphor. I just don't know if it worked in the context. So uh it's really hard to criticize because i i absolutely think all the language is gorgeous um, and
0: and i i feel like like i said i'm not a good enough author to have concrete suggestions it's like after reading this i have faith in the author just from reading this it's like i think you could have made this even better because i see that you're such a good author that you right. could, that i'll bet you have better ideas than i do about about a second run through the story or whatever
1: let's petition the author to like write another draft, right? <laughs>
2: I know I would love to hear from Candleback. Candleback, has, we don't know what happened to Candleback. Candleback hasn't been heard from since twenty eleven. However, Candleback's live journal is still up, um, and uh, she she at least uh, put all of I think all of pretty much all of her works went up on Ao three pretty much with like within a year most of so it almost was like they were archiving everything on the AO3 for safekeeping and just kind of disappeared, which happens. So for a long time I was like, oh maybe, you know, maybe she died, but it was just possible. But I, I sort of maintain a hope that maybe she's just um moved on with her life or, you know, who knows, gone professional or or whatever. But um anyway, I would love to hear from Kendall Beck. But yeah, I I think I agree with that too because my my criticism, my only criticism I could really find is that the timeline I got a little disoriented with because I knew enough about them mm. that at first mm, I thought yeah. maybe this would have been started like oh, all in, even though it's obvious from the title, it takes place across a year. When I first started it, when John's coming through the window I th- and then the second scene is like a, looking back at how Paul met John, which is also in the summer. I assumed that that was a flashback from summer 57, but that we were in summer of 58. So then I kept reading. I was like, Oh no. Okay. This is, the summer of 57, so that first scene with John in the window is probably just right. a few days after. And then I got through, and then it was sort of like winter. I don't know. I got a little disoriented, so I could have used, even though I don't like over-explaining or, or putting the exact dates in, it maybe would have been nice to have some more mentions of like what the weather's doing, or maybe like a Christmas, or she does mention the end of term at one point, so you know, okay, that's end of... Um, June or July, one of the British school tournaments and then everything very quickly like that gig and the kiss and then the sexual encounter and then Julia's death. And we know when Julia dies, that all happens that has to happen within like a month or so. So everything is kind of compressed. So like the, yeah, I guess I would have asked for more signposts as to like the every, like the first, like three quarters of the story, is maybe takes place over like almost a full year and then everything in that last quarter is like compounded in a, maybe a couple of weeks or a month or something so that took me a couple of weeks to figure out like where we were in time
1: I agree I mean I, I think I had the same issue because like we talked about earlier I was like was it really only a couple of days in you know between when John and Paul had their encounter and Julia died like I thought it was several weeks like I just need, yeah, a little more concreteness
0: on those details. I do appreciate, though, in general that, like you said, Sarah, they don't use dates because it's so from Paul's perspective. And that's how that's how one thinks about time. I very rarely think, yes, it is July of 2022. But I often think like, oh, it's the end of the school year. Oh, Like, yeah. you know, OK, it's summer now. OK, it's been a couple of weeks since that yes. other thing.
1: But like they <laughs> could have still given you as the audience more clues like this author was very good at giving the audience clues that the characters didn't have so i then again though um it's sort of feels like a minor complaint in comparison with how well done the story is well
0: sometimes our complaints are very minor like right i think we were all a fan of the story and i think i didn't do a Oh, yeah, I haven't done a round of praise yet. I guess we should end on praise. But I don't know. There's there's a lot of really good turns of phrase in here. And I think they are often sometimes they're like like cool evocative description. But very often those lines are just like the perfect line to describe what's happening kind of emotionally, especially with Paul. Like that line I love where like it was very important not to look at John for too long, like or too many seconds in a row like these very relatable, precise, emotional things, I think are what, what a lot of the time keeps the story feeling really strong throughout.
2: Yeah. There was a line that you, when you were reading the quote, you kind of paused to like point out because it was so good, (laughs) which is where Paul's on the roof talking to John and Stuart. John's blanking him or shutting him out. And Paul's upset, but his, I think it's his mouth made a smile versus yeah, saying he, like, Paul smiled, or or instead of saying like um, Paul faked a smile or put on a smile, just right. that his mouth made a smile. Something about that was great. Yeah, all those just yeah. dis- all those descriptions and metaphors, like that first line that Tori mentioned the uh, the church bells peeled the sky back a boiled blue color, which is obviously probably Candlebeck thinking about how you describe bells, which is the pe- peeling of bells is like a way to talk about bells ringing out. But then, and it's very like appropriate because John Lennon loved wordplay. So the fact that the instead of of the peal of bells, the bells are peeling back the sky is like a right. perfect kind of Lennon way. Um, yeah, I have all sorts of lines written down. I, I won't like, ex- <laughs> you know, keep us here all day. But um, yeah, I think all I probably need to say about that is the the metaphor and the and the the way the deafness with the words and descriptions.
1: Well, like,
0: I'm just going to second that, Sarah. <laughs> I think like, you're thirding it at this point. I think that's Thirding just like, it, yes, that's right. That's what this story, oh, gosh. that's what sticks out in one's mind, especially.
1: It totally is. And like, I I don't know if I said this odd or off, Mike, but this is a story I've taken probably the most notes for. But when I looked through my notes, they were mostly just quotes. <laughs> they weren't notes at all. They were just, <laughs> I pulled this line. And I guess just to finish it off, um... There are so many beautiful lines, but I will finish it off with um one I like of many. Um, Let's see. Should I do the pretty one or the funny one? Um, All right. Let's do the funny one. All the way drunk, drunk and past drunk, John accused George of having sold his soul to be able to play the guitar like that. George looked so pleased Paul had to laugh. And John pounded his fists on the table, demanding to know what the devil looked like. Like Elvis, George said, swaying slightly in his seat. Elvis in a suit made of black leather, and he's 10 feet tall with red eyes. and His guitar is also a sword. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that feels like something that I just feel so real. Like those guys would have had that conversation.
1: Right? And, like, I picked on the funny one because I think we talked a lot about the pretty ones. Mm. But, like, there's also a good humor and characterization.
0: It's a great story. Well, great. I'm glad well, we definitely all enjoyed it. And before we close out the the episode, there's just two things I want to check in on. First is, uh, is this fan fiction? Just real really quick. quick.
2: I, uh, sorry. Uh, I go back because... To me, so when I listened to you guys' episode, and the more I thought about it, I was like, "To me, fan fiction, at least now, it's the best umbrella to put it under. Is are you mm. taking copyrighted material? Are you taking someone's character and doing something new with it, and not making money? So, mm. because I think like when Neil Gaiman writes what you would call a Sherlock Holmes fan fiction." but then it's able to publish it and make money off of it. To me, that kind of is not no longer in the spirit of fan fiction. And there's something about not making money and being non-commercial and being a gift economy that feels essential to me. But then, of course, that all gets confused. Like, you can't copyright real life. Right. So RPF, <laughs> although I still, like, comfortably say, oh, yeah, RPF is fan fiction, um, I don't actually have a nice, pretty... Um, like categorization for for why it is it does feel like fan fiction to me especially yeah not i feel like there's a lot of sort of liberal kind of character and i don't know i think i would say yes but i don't have a great like because of this but it feels like rpf and to me um that falls under fan fiction just because i (laughs)
0: i think that's as fair as anything i mean we can do the pornography definition of we know it when we see it yeah i was Um, about to say that because i always say that right right. it's it's it definitely feels like fan fiction even if i can't make that jive with a precise written definition but thank you for feeling your thoughts on that sarah because you have lots of great fan fiction related thoughts and on that note, could you share with us and the listeners again where we can find you online, talking about fanfictiony things with fanfictiony people?
2: Oh yes, um, of course. So uh, I do write my A O three pen name is storyshark two thousand five. But talking about fanfiction things, I also have uh, a podcast, um, which I followed in the lovely footsteps of Retro Fanfic Retrospective, and it's called Talkin Fanfic T A L K I N apostrophe Fanfic um i uh yeah you can find me wherever you find podcasts and i have a twitter although i just literally use it as my personal twitter so whatever i happen to be into at the time so right now you're going to see a lot of me sharing o- oasis gifts and videos so it's not terribly professional but um i am on twitter and Tumblr.
0: oh i'm right there with you on twitter <laughs> yeah <laughs> the, the retro fanfic Twitter is just my Twitter and I, I don't do much personal stuff with it, but I don't do much professional stuff with it either, honestly.
2: Well, we're amateurs here anyway, aren't we? No <laughs> one's right. getting paid for this.
0: We're not beholden to anyone is what I like to think. Well, I, I mean, we're only beholden
1: to our fans, which is basically each other. So right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. We give each
0: other permission.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: All right. Well, if I am not mistaken, this was episode two hundred and forty of Retro Fanfic Retrospective. Am I mistaken? Two hundred forty-one. Oh, geez. Okay. <laughs> one hundred. No, oh, one hundred. Oh, oh, I, I, I missed a couple. I missed a hundred episodes there.
2: Still, <laughs> <laughs> so that's amazing though. One forty-one. I was trick people because my I'm in my season two and I've only done like, what, what am I going to be on like, the third episode? So I say two o three. And people are like, oh, she's done 203 episodes. <laughs> Incorrect. Ooh, I'm, I'm on like trick. number 12.
1: <laughs> I like that trick.
0: <laughs> uh, so 140, yeah. is that where we're at? Yeah, we're at 140. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, as I sometimes am, this is episode 140 of Retro Fanfic Retrospective. The first year by Candle, Candle what? Candle Candleback. Candle Beck. I want to yeah. say Candlejack from Freakazoid, but it's not Candlejack, it's Candlebeck. It's a uh, Young if,
2: Frankenstein reference for anyone
1: that's interested.
0: Oh, okay.
2: Put the candle back. Oh,
1: oh my god. <laughs> I think so, anyway. I would not have made that connection at all.
0: You can find it on Archive of Our Own, and we'll provide the copy there. You can also find it on... Um, on LiveJournal, and I guess I may as well provide the link to that as well, because there's a little author introduction, and it's it's possible the two versions are different, and we didn't do enough detective work to find out. Our podcast is edited by Della Rose, who uh, is going to have a tough time of it today because our friendly recorder program, Craig, did not like us. Um, also, Craig has sold out and charges money to do before what Craig used to do for free.
1: He's sold his soul to play the
0: guitar. It doesn't make Craig any better of a recording program, but now he can play the guitar really well. Yeah. I mean, not that we'll ever see it, but (laughs) I'm happy for Craig. The intro song is The Weekly Fair off of the album Popey's Incredible Adventure by Komiku. The outro song is Run Against the Universe from the same album. You can find that album and other works by Komiku at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. You know, we could use some Beatles music, but I think that's famously very, very expensive to get the rights for.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I hear Michael Jackson. Oh, wait, he's dead. (laughs) That whole catalog thing.
0: You can find our website at retrofanficretrospective.podbean.com or bit.ly slash retrofanfic. It just leads to the list of episodes. It's nothing fancy, but you definitely want to listen to all 140 episodes, right? Actually, it's more than that. So um, you better get started now. If you have questions, comments, or thoughts about the episode, you can contact us on Twitter at RetroFanfic, Facebook at RetroFanfic, send us an email at retrofanficretrospective at gmail.com, or you could leave comments or reviews on the podcast service that you're probably using to listen to us. I'm Amato. I'm Tori. And I'm Sarah. We're just three Earth lifeforms trying to be nice to each other. Until next time, take care.
2: Yay! Right. Well done, team. Thanks Thank for you, bearing Sarah. with us,
0: oh Sarah, my Oh,
2: yeah. <laughs> no, it ended up great. I hope. I'm so sorry, Dylan, for all the work you'll have. <laughs>